Okay, well, welcome. Um, if I haven't met you before, I'm Lydia Foreman. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio. Um, welcome to the incarnation class. Um, this is this class I originally anticipated being um, two nights, so like one like tonight, and then maybe the following Thursday, but it ended up being one night. So this is actually kind of a bit of an experiment with these midweek classes. It's my understanding that like at Missio, we haven't done midweek classes in a while. Um, it's usually been on like Sunday afternoons on Zoom. Uh, so this is just kind of like an experiment just to see kind of what, what works best for you guys. Is this appealing? Is this beneficial? Whatever. So um, if this is kind of like your jam, if you like classes like this, Keep your eye out because we have some other ones like in the works in the coming months on other topics. So yeah, just keep your eye out. Uh, I want to say first off that I am well aware that this is an enormous topic to take on for one night. Um, so we're really only going to be skimming the surface of this massive idea. Um, so. Just a disclaimer right there, but that's okay, right? It's like what Rick Steve says about like traveling to Europe, like you can't possibly see it all. So just like, there's your reason to like go back. You have another reason to go back. So like, if you want to learn more, I can point you in the direction of more resources. So, uh, but yeah, okay. So is this? This is just for funsies. Uh, but like, does anyone recognize what this image is? Look familiar. Anyone seen it before? This is from, this is called the Cairo or the incarnation page of the Book of Kells. Has anybody heard of the Book of Kells? You've heard about it? I don't know what it is. So it's, a, it's a, a, what's known as an illuminated manuscript of the four gospels made in around, mm, scholars think about like 800 AD uh, by British, British monks, Scottish, Irish, English, there's a lot of debates. But around 800 AD, these monks made what this illustrated manuscript. So basically has the text of all four gospels in it. But it, you, as you can see, it's got this incredibly elaborate uh, you know, artwork. You could gaze at it for hours. It's in Trinity College, Dublin. If anyone's ever been to Trinity College, I have. If you've been to that library, the long library, you should Google it. If you are a bibliophile, it is like literally heaven on earth, but this is where it's on display. But like I said, it's, the, it's called the incarnation page because this is the opening page of Matthew's gospel uh, where it talks about the nativity. And it's, it's really interesting because it's got all these different visual connections to both Christ's death and his birth. The Cairo is there because these are the first two Greek letters of his name, of Christ. Anyway, just for funsies, I was just kind of piddling around about like, you know, what do you have when it comes to like art and uh, the incarnation? But there's no Anglophiles in the room, apparently. I thought someone was going to totally be like, oh yeah, David. Yay, Book of Kells. Yes, David, thank you. Um, but anyway, before we dig into this topic, I kind of just was curious, like, what are your thoughts when you hear the word incarnation? And like, not looking for a textbook definition, but like, free associate. What do you think? Blows my mind. Mm-hmm. What else? What words come to mind? It can be truly silly. <laughs> doesn't have to be as, doesn't have to be sophisticated. What's that? 
Resuscitation? You guys are way more sophisticated. <laughs> this is way more advanced. I literally was thinking carne asada. <laughs> I literally think about like carne asada tacos and which carne asada is what kind of taco. It's meat, right? It's meat tacos. You're not getting tofu, you're not getting the veggie, you're getting the meat, right? Because of that word, carne. Uh, so, the word incarnation comes from the Latin, and more specifically, the ecclesiastical Latin, so the churchy Latin, and it really literally means to become flesh, so like to put on meat. Uh, so, and it's rooted in John's Gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so, to get the kind of broader context of this sentence, where we get this term incarnation, I kind of wanted to just read a few chunks of John 1, just to kind of get us situated. So, because I'm going to be talking so, so much, would someone be so bold as to read the words on the screen? John 1, beautiful text. Anybody? Go for it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then skipping down a few verses, continue. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born, not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So, you may have noticed that John's Gospel opens with creation language, right? And what other book in the Bible do we know opens with creation language? Anyone? Genesis. Genesis. Exactly. Perfect. Don't you love my transitions? I work so hard on them. Uh, so, yeah, Genesis 1 also opens with in the beginning. And as many books in the Hebrew Bible, a.k.a. our Old Testament, it's actually named with its opening words. So actually Jews call it Bereshit, which is the Hebrew for in the beginning. Uh, and so this language, is this my next slide? This language would have sounded really familiar to John's readers because it would have sounded a lot like the opening of Genesis, which they would have been familiar with. And they also would have recognized that what John was saying here about the word also sounded a lot like what people said about wisdom, an idea that is explored a lot in the Old Testament. Now, we don't talk about wisdom a lot in like church context today. We don't really. Um, but it's actually an enormous topic in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, it comprises one third of the Old Testament. So you've got the law, you've got the prophets, and then you've got this other genre called wisdom literature. And so you've got, you know, Job, you've got Ecclesiastes, you've got Song of Solomon, kind of shows up in a few Psalms, but Proverbs is the main one, right? 
And basically the idea of wisdom, the way they sort of defined it, was that it was the set of truths or principles that kind of made up the order of the universe. More simply, like, how does the world work? And so the idea was that if you could sort of basically align yourself, your life, with that truth, like, things would go well for you. And that's kind of how, like, you hear Proverbs, a lot of Proverbs re reads, right? Like, walk in the way of wisdom, right? It's a lot of, like, axioms like that. So, in the book of Proverbs is where we hear about wisdom the most. And in the book of Proverbs, we actually hear about wisdom being personified in those first nine chapters or so. And there's a few things that we learn about wisdom, and I have them up here. So we learned that it existed before creation. We learned that it was present during creation, and that it revealed God. These are all things that wisdom did. Interesting. And it was personified, right? So fast forward to John's gospel, all the way to 80, 80 90 or so where he uses the Greek term logos. That's what John uses for that word, word. And it's similar, very similar to this idea of wisdom. And the way that logos was sort of defined, and if you, you, know, you Google this, you'll go on a million rabbit trails because this is a very complex idea. But basically the idea was similar to wisdom. It's this principle of rationality that was sort of embedded in the cosmos. And it connected the human mind to the mind of God. And so what John does here in John 1, and is really the central focus of his entire gospel, is that the Logos is not this abstract principle, but it's a person. He personifies the Logos in the form and the person of Jesus. And so, in verse 14, as David read, he says, The word became flesh and lived among us, or dwelled among us. But that word that he uses, live, it's not really live. It's not like that. It's not very plain. Like, there's lots of words he could have used that would have just been, like, simply live. But what he uses instead is skenao, which actually means more like to dwell in a tent or to pitch a tent or to tabernacle with. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So why do you think he might use that verb? Why choose, what's, the, what's the thinking behind that word choice? Any guesses? What was the tabernacle and later the temple? What did it symbolize? The place where God was? Yes. Right, exactly. It was the meeting place between God and humanity. And it symbolized, like Sandy said, it symbolized God's presence in the midst of his people. Remember, after Sinai, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they carried that little tabernacle around. It was the portable tent, God going with them along for 40 years. So again, John is pulling from Israel's history to make about a point about Jesus and what he came to do. And so for John, his central goal is the disclosure of Jesus's identity. This person, Jesus, is wisdom. He is divine reason. He is the cause of order and purpose of the universe. He was there at creation with God. He brought the cosmos into being. And John wants to demonstrate that by Jesus taking on humanity now in the incarnation, he's simply continuing a tradition of what God has been doing throughout the whole Old Testament and the history with his people, which is a strong desire for community and dwelling with his people. 
So it's taken lots of forms. It's been the tabernacle. It's been the temple. The temple was destroyed, rebuilt, blah, blah, blah. Here we are with Jesus in the incarnation. Okay, you guys with me? So I started with John's gospel because that's where he said the word incarnation is derived from. But you may or may not remember, John's gospel actually doesn't contain the Christmas story. It doesn't tell it at all. And of course, Christmas and Advent is the time of year where we typically think about the incarnation. That's why we're here tonight. Because of course, what do we celebrate at Christmas? Whose birthday is it? It's Jesus. You guys know that song, Happy Birthday Jesus? Do you know this? David, do you know this? <laughs> I'm sure it's a lovely song, and it goes something like, Happy Birthday Jesus, uh, I'm so glad it's Christmas, all the presents are nice, but the real gift is you. It, it's, it's, it's bad. But and actually, the, the only time I ever heard it was in... It was like a rural town in Georgia, and they were having like a Christmas festival, and this poor little girl was singing it way off key. And it's just been burned in my mind forever. So whenever anyone says Jesus' birthday, I think this girl singing way off key in Chickamauga, Georgia. But anyway, we talk about the incarnation at Christmas because that's when we celebrate Jesus' birth. And Christmas is normally a happy time. Am I right? Yes? Traditionally? We do fun things, sleigh rides, our Starbucks cups get, Starbucks, yeah, it says, I don't know why that sounded weird in my ear at that point, but our Starbucks cups get more festive, right? There's parties, we say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, one or the other. I mean, it's not the same lead up to Easter, right? Like in Lent, where we fast and we are reflective. It's like a somber time. And yet, I feel like the older I get, the harder it is to celebrate Christmas or to get in the mood for Christmas. I don't know if you feel that way, but I just feel like even if nothing is going terribly wrong, it's just exhausting. I'm just like, ugh. Like, I feel like it's another way in which I, like, fail to meet expectations as a parent. Like, right now, I'm looking at people's posts, and they're like, their houses look so great, and, like, their garland looks so beautiful, and I'm like, ugh. Like... My children's memories are on the line. I can't get in the spirit of like making our home feel Christmassy. But <laughs> in another sense, though, Christmas can be really hard to celebrate, like especially when we look at the state of the world right now. Especially these last few years feel pretty incongruent with celebrating, like all is well. I remember like a few weeks ago at Thanksgiving, right? We all got those notifications on our phones about how like, all right, here we go. Here's the new variant. Going to be a thousand times more contagious. And it's just like, boom. Yeah. The last few years have been really hard and really painful. I mean, more some of, some, for some of us more than others. And so it kind of feels wrong, like almost, to talk about peace and joy, like all those themes of Christmas. Like, think about peace and joy, and it's like, you know, we've got the pandemic, and we're more culturally and politically divided than we've ever been in our history, and it's just like, it's more like strife and grief than peace and joy. And yet, I am going to argue that Christmas is actually what we need more than anything right now, and not because I'm a pastor and I have to say those things. And hear me out, I'm not saying that what we need to do is like bury like our pain in the magic of Christmas. Like, 
we just need to try to capture our childlike wonder and just numb out all the suffering. Although there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you were like, you know what? I don't, I want to put aside all my anxiety and worry and pain right now. And I just want to like decorate a tree. Like you do that. Like that can be very healing if that is where you are. But what I'm saying is, is that Christmas is not like a day at Disney World where like you just walk in, flip a switch and it's happiest place on earth. It's not an escapist story that's stripped of the pain of reality. Rather than what's at the center of the Christmas story is the incarnation of God, where God stoops down to humanity and takes on all the pain and the suffering and the vulnerability that that entails. And so, in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we learn that Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant. And so before he can quietly release her from his engagement, sparing her shame and humiliation and sparing himself some shame and humiliation, he gets visited by an angel, remember? And he's told that they're going to name him Jesus in fulfillment of what was said by the prophet Isaiah, that the virgin will have a son and he will be called Emmanuel. I had a really wonderful slide with the Hebrew and it disappeared and I don't know what happened to it. But as I'm sure many of you know, Emmanuel means what? Even if you haven't taken Hebrew, you probably know this. God with us. El means God. Im means with. And that new means us. There's some connecting vowels, but there you go. It's literally God with us in Hebrew. Now think about it for a minute. And if you've grown up in the church, really think about it for a minute. Because we often rush past this. Like, yeah, yeah, we know. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Yes. But think about it. The very name of Jesus means that he is with us. Um, I get, it's, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when I hear people say, I was actually talking about this with Meg the other day, when I hear people say like that religions are all basically the same. Like I know it's a very well-intentioned uh, sentiment. Um, like it's an attempt at religious tolerance. Uh, like let's just all get along. And that's, that's great. I get that. But to actually say that they're all the same is not very helpful, and it's also just wrong. It doesn't really do justice to all the particularities of, you know, all the religions and all of the specificity of the cultures that they came from. Um, but that aside, as a Christian, the thing that really bothers me about that idea that it's just all basically the same is that it does an extreme injustice to the truth of who the God we worship is. Because unlike other religions, we have a God who suffers with us. He doesn't ask us to deny it or to transcend it or to accept it and just deal with it. We have a God who actually enters our humanity, who knows how frustratingly limited it is to be, like we, like we know. And the older I get, the more I realize like how much that really matters to me. Like I don't want to just be rescued. Like I need you to be here in it with me. That's a God that my heart really responds to. Not someone who rescues me from afar and not like an abstract concept that I can believe in when I'm my most calm and my most rational. But like when I'm in the trenches, when I'm at my worst, 
when I feel at like my most unlovable, he says, I am a God who is with you. That's literally my name. And so this, my friends, is the misunderstood thing about Christmas and the incarnation. Christmas doesn't ask us to pretend that everything is fine, to like force merriment, like pain, suffering, grief, loss, like those just don't exist. Uh, I like how uh, Father Ronald Rollheiser puts, points this out. He says that Christmas is not, it's not Easter. So Christmas celebrates Christ's birth into all of these things, the loss, the sin, the suffering, not his removal of them. See the difference? The incarnation doesn't promise immediate heaven on earth, but it promises God's presence in our lives now. And I really like this uh, quote in this wor- the words of this one theologian. The incarnation does not provide us with a ladder by which to escape from the ambiguities of life and scale the heights of heaven, or a day at Disney World, another way to put it. It's not escapist. Rather, it enables us to burrow deep into the heart of planet Earth and find it shimmering with divinity. I love that. I love that line about burrowing into the Earth. The idea of reveling in the material, the flesh, the physical. And that's something I'm going to explore a bit later. But before we do that, I want to take a look at this this hit the history of this theological concept because it does have a history and it was very hotly debated and it's just worth knowing a little bit about. So if this is like not your jam at all and you're like, oh, please don't make me do history. Don't worry. It won't last long. I promise you can totally ignore all the dates and the names. Just get kind of the idea of what was at stake and kind of where they arrived. But it's literally three and a half minutes you're learning about this Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea, sometimes also spelled Nicaea, both cool, is usually regarded as the first ecumenical council of the church. Historians can punch on about whether Jerusalem counts in their own time. It happened in 325 AD, and if you haven't done so yet, watch the History of the Church video in this series to get a good idea as to whether, where the Council of Nicaea fits. Prior to 313, the church was dealing with official persecution from the Roman Empire, and as such, it found it pretty tough to communicate freely. Depicted by the little blue patches on this map, the local churches were small and isolated. Most of these little blue patches were minorities living in hostile pagan territory. Each community was run by a local bishop with significant power to interpret the faith. These little churches were tough, hardcore Christians who seemingly had to battle with an awful lot of lines. In 313, after the Edict of Milan, which legalised Christianity, the church spread rapidly and these isolated communities could communicate again. Hooray! And boo! Too many years alone meant that some communities, like the one in Alexandria, had developed the strange idea that Jesus was the best creature God had ever created, but he wasn't God. This heretical belief became known as Arianism, after Arius, the priest who most publicly encouraged him. The Western Church pretty much ignored this teaching, but the Eastern half of the Church was arguing so much that Constantine, who put his whole reputation behind the Christian church with that Edict of Milan thing, declared enough was enough. He summoned the bishops to Nicaea for a council. 318 bishops turned up. 
Many were still bearing scars from the persecution that ended only 12 years prior. They argued a lot and eventually Constantine suggested a reformulation of the belief to clarify it. He also suggested that voting against it would be unwise. 316 bishops agreed and uh, two disagreed. This reformulation was most of what we now call the Nicene Creed. Jesus is light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. The two bishops who voted against it were excommunicated. Unlucky. Now, Constantine's reformulation was right. It agrees with Scripture and it accurately describes Christ's divine nature. This statement remains the basis of Christian orthodoxy today. Jesus is God. However, secretly, many of the bishops just voted for it because Emperor Constantine told them to. This was a political act aimed at seeking unity for the sake of the Roman Empire. The Pope wasn't even there. So when these bishops returned to their home diocese, many continued teaching the Arian heresies they were teaching before the council. Arianism, rather than being squashed, spread. Indeed, even Constantine himself flipped sides at least one. So while the council had re-evaluated the belief and successfully reformulated it through codification, the church had failed to successfully apply that reaffirmed teaching to new circumstances. Because of this, within 60 years, another council had to be called to reaffirm the belief again. So in revision... All right. Sorry, hope that wasn't too, too painful. But you get the idea, right? They had a council. They had to make these rulings on who Jesus was. Now, what the th one thing that the video doesn't mention is why this, this, con this uh, heresy, Arianism, even sprung up at all, like in the first place. It wasn't just because the folks just didn't like the idea of Jesus being God, but it was because they were trying to solve the very complex idea of the Trinity, Right? Like, how can three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be a single being? Not easy, right? It's hard work. And so one way that they tried to solve this was by way of what is known as modalism. So God is one being, and he shows up in different modes. And kind of like on first hearing, you're like, well, it makes sense, right? Like, I can get behind that. And it's very, very likely that at least one of us in this room has been uh, has had the Trinity explained to them uh, very well-intentioned, but nevertheless theologically erroneously, <laughs> using that this analogy of modalism. Like if you've ever heard that, like the Holy the the Trinity is like uh, like H2O. It can be like uh, solid, liquid, or gas, or something like that. That's modalism. Now. What's the problem with that idea? You can't be all three of Right. You can't, I mean, you, someone could argue, well, it's at their root, they're all H2O. But, like, thinking about it in terms of the Bible, like, there's some issues with that. There's a lot of issues. But one is, it doesn't, it doesn't really think, work well with Scripture. Because what do we do... Like in a scene like Jesus' baptism, and we hear God the Father's voice coming down from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Or what do we do with Jesus on the cross crying out to God the Father saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like is that just 
a farce? <laughs> is that just sort of like some divine theatrics? It makes the Bible sort of disingenuous, right? There's other reasons, but that's one problem. And so what ended up happening was Arius swung way in the other direction, and he said, as the video said, Jesus just really isn't God. Like, he's the best thing God created. You can even call him the son of God, but he's not God. He's not the same. And in fact, he's more like us than he is like God. And so as you can see, they were struggling to understand this idea, and it wasn't easy. But it was very important, right? Like, this isn't just sort of a wine versus grape juice debate. Like, the salvation of humanity hangs in the balance here. Now, we don't talk about creeds here much at Missio, as much as David and I would love to. <laughs> David is my liturgy nerd, my fellow liturgy nerd. But things like the Nicene Creed are actually really, really important uh, because they distill the Orthodox Christian faith, like they said, right? And it's, it's actually some of the very, like, it's very basic Christian uh, tenets, and it distinguishes us from other religions, um, namely Mormonism. I don't think they affirm the Nicene Creed, if I'm, if I'm right. So to summarize, what the Nicene Creed affirmed was that Jesus was of the same essence as the Father, not just like the Father. And this is super important, especially in terms of what we are talking about tonight, because it means that Jesus really is Emmanuel. He is God, emphasis on the God part, God with us. And so I kind of want to read it just because I miss reading creeds aloud. I used to read this every day. I would recite this every Sunday. So it goes, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. That's a hard concept. We won't go into that tonight. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We will believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right. That's the Nicene Creed. So, answering this question of Jesus' divinity, which resulted in this creed, was very helpful and absolutely essential for the gospel. But it didn't solve all the problems. Because no sooner did they solve this problem that then the question arose, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be human? How did that make sense with Jesus' divine nature? And so to go for that, I got another short video, even shorter, about this Council of Chalcedon. So fast forward about 120, 30 years or so. Truth in 60 seconds. Can't get any better than that. After the Council of Ephesus confirmed Mary as the mother of God, debates still raged as to how both divinity and humanity could be fully united in Jesus Christ. 
Some still claim that Jesus was truly God, but only appeared to be human. Some that Jesus was two complete persons, one divine personality and one human personality, schizophrenically bound in one. Some that Jesus was a strange mixture of divinity and humanity, like some third thing never before seen. Now, to clarify these issues, the Council of Chalcedon was called in the year of our Lord 451. And it was here at Chalcedon that the church clarified the now perennial formula that Jesus Christ is the one divine person subsisting in two complete natures, one fully divine nature and one fully human nature. Jesus is not half God and half man, nor is he God in the appearance of man, nor is he a man who was uniquely gifted with divine powers or adopted for a saving mission. Jesus is fully God and fully man. All that belongs to God belongs to Jesus. Also, all that belongs to being human, save the deforming effects of sin, belong to Jesus. In Jesus, a complete divine nature and a complete human nature are united in the one person of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Theology calls this union of two natures in one divine person the hypostatic union. Brothers and sisters, keep studying. This is Father Brad Elliott from the Western Dominican Province. We will keep studying, Father Brad. We will. <laughs> All right, so does that make sense, what Father Brad just told us? So this council, oh, go ahead, yeah. Uh, I was just curious, what, what, would they, what would Adam be like before, like before the fall? How would that fit Ooh, what do you, I don't know if I totally understand your question, no, but it like, kind of sounds like what I'm going to get to in a second, but keep going. Oh, just, just like when you say, like, fully, fully, fully man without any of the effects yes. of the of sin. Oh, okay, hold on. I think I'm going to get to it, and if I don't, bring it back up again, but I think I know where you're going. Okay, so this council affirmed what we now know as the hypostatic union. And so basically, as Father Brad said, it's Jesus is both fully God, fully man. He's both perfectly divine and perfectly human. He is two complete and distinct natures at once. Hypostatic just means person. Now, that means he's not 90% God, 10% man, or 50-50, but 100% of each. So the divine nature is exactly the same nature as God the Father, and his human nature is the exact same as ours. And these two natures, which started in Mary's womb when she conceived him by way of the Holy Spirit, will forever be united in this person, Jesus. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a like, right? We can't really get it. I mean, honestly, they can say these things, but it's not like it's, it's like salt resolved. Um, but taken together, these two councils produce creeds and confessions derived from scripture, and they teach us this about the incarnation of Jesus. Oh, actually, pause. This, is, uh, this, this icon is really cool. It's called Christ the Pentocrator. It's from the 6th century. And this, they think, scholar, scholars think that this was made in response to this council, like resolving this issue. And if you see, it's like Jesus' face kind of weird. <laughs> but like, it's supposed to be a fusion of these two, like these dual natures. So Jesus must be on the left, God's on the right. But kind of interesting. I'm always interested in sort of like what the artistic uh, reception is from all these theological moments. Anyway, yeah. 
was just going to say, Lydia, one of our pastors um, years back, she would always say, Jesus, not Jesus Christ, but Jesus the Christ. Mm. And whenever she'd talk about that, and I, it's not like Jesus and Christ being his last name. Right. Christ. Yeah. Jesus the Christ. Yeah. So whenever she was, in her, she talked about this. Mm-hmm. At church, she would always address it as Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it means anointed. The anointed one is basically a title. Right. But we are right. It's not a last name, and that's often what we often think that. Um, But yeah, so these two creeds taken together, they teach us this. I have them up here. That just as there is no true knowledge of God the Father to be had independently from God the Son, there is no true humanity to be had independently from God who comes to us in and as the man Jesus. It's kind of a weird thing to say. But what it's basically saying, well, actually, if you know, if you've ever heard Blaise Pascal, famous philosopher, he put it this way. Not only do we know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. We only know life and death through Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot know the meaning of our life or our death of God or of ourselves. It's kind of interesting. So this goes back to where we began in John 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, wisdom. It's the way the world works. Christ is reality. It's not God's reality and the reality of the world. It's one reality. And this is what Paul is trying to convey in Colossians 1, which is known as the Christ hymn. I love it. It's one of my favorite passages. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, so at this point, your eyes might be crossing a little bit. Like, what are we even talking about? One reality. What? So it is pretty mind-blowing stuff, and it's probably going to take a minute or perhaps a lifetime to really sink in. So let's turn to another question, which I think might be yours, or related at least. And it maybe came up to you after you heard Father Brad. He said it kind of quickly. He's fully God, fully human, save for the deforming effects of sin. Do you remember him saying that? And you may have wondered, well, what does that mean exactly? What kind of human is that? So like, what does it mean for Jesus to become human? Like, really? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, the Father sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, he also says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so that's what Scripture tells us. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean that, uh, or what kind of, Uh, form does Jesus' humanity take? So, great question. We're not the first ones to be wondering these things. So, to give you kind of a little brief survey, Roman Catholicism actually uh, 
was trying to figure this out. And this question ultimately led to their doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Does anyone know what the Immaculate Conception is? Tell me, Garrett, shout it out. It's that Mary was conceived without sin as well. Yeah. I, embarrassingly, for many years, I can't remember when it was revealed to me, I totally thought the Immaculate Conception was just the virgin birth. But it's like Garrett said, it means that Mary herself was conceived without sin. Interesting, right? I didn't know that for so long. Where'd they get that? Not scripture. <laughs> but what they, they literally got this doctrine trying to resolve this question. So in their attempt to figure out how was Jesus a real human without sin, they had to make Mary sinless as well. Because what they wanted to do was put a very safe distance between the kind of humanity that you and I possess, one that is affected by the fall, by Adam, and the one that Jesus possessed. Okay? So, that was Roman Catholicism's way of dealing with that question. Now, Protestants, on the other hand, like Ken just kind of alluded to, we don't espouse this Catholic doctrine. The argument being, there really is no scriptural basis for it. Which is true. It's not found in scripture. Instead, the Protestants, um, we claim the virgin birth, which does have a scriptural basis, right? We read it earlier. We read it a couple times. Now, while Protestants all agree on the virgin birth as mattering quite a bit when it comes to Jesus' humanity, it's not universally agreed upon just exactly how it affects Jesus' humanity. We agree that it exists, but we don't all have the same idea in terms of, like, what does that mean? especially when it comes to the sin part. So one very, very dominant interpretation that many modern evangelicals today hold actually has that exact same impulse as the Catholic impulse, which is to sort of isolate or segregate the type of humanity that Jesus took on, which was free from the pollution of sin, as Father Brad said, and our own, which is very much polluted with sin, right? So, came up with this very cute slide. I'm so proud of it to, to illustrate what I'm, what I'm doing. I really wanted to make the sin continue to hit the brick wall, but we'll just have to keep hitting it. <laughs> okay, so whereas Catholics say that Jesus was without sin because there was an interruption in the inheritance of sin between Mary and her parents, Protestant evangelicals, or at least a lot of them, interpret this as saying that the, inter the interruption occurred uh, between Mary and Jesus. So their emphasis is on the virgin birth and that Jesus assume, assumed a humanity that was not connected to our own fallen state. Uh, and when I say fallen state, is everybody on the same page? What does that mean? What does that mean, our fallen state? Our state of sin? It's what we inherit from our first father, Adam, according to Romans 5. Sin entered the world through one man. We're talking about Genesis 3, right? Adam ate the fruit, and from henceforth, we were born into sin. It's a, you know, it's a contested doctrine, but it, it does show up. In, there is a scriptural basis. Augustine uh, really made it more fully fledged. But that's the idea of what a fallen state is. So, both Protestants, or at least a certain segment of Protestants, and Catholics believe that the kind of humanity that Jesus possessed was disconnected from that fall entirely. Because
because Jesus didn't have a human father, evangelicals say, he was not fully descended from Adam, meaning he took on sort of a pre-fall Adam state. Okay, I know that's a lot of weird terms, but does that, are you on the same page? Does everybody kind of grab it? Okay, okay cool. So while they don't agree with each other, they act, and they, they differ on how they get there, they actually end up in the same place. Christ's humanity, in order for him to be sinless, needs to look different from our own. Now, what's the issue with this? Why is this sort of unsatisfying? Like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> Why does that, I don't know, maybe that doesn't land on you like that with you, but it does with me. Yeah, why are we born into sin? Why are we born into sin? And like, also, if Jesus is born, like, I kind of want him to be like me, right? Like, I kind of need him to be like me in every way. He doesn't have to sin, but he's not even like fallen. Like, he's not even, he hasn't been affected by the fall. So, to locate the issue with these views, I'm going to quote 4th century church father oop, Gregory of Nazianzus. Now this is kind of like flowery writing, so I'll read it slowly. But the problem with this is he says, it's basically this first line, for that which he, meaning Jesus, has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation. Like, preach, Father Greg. That's, how, that's what I'm talking about. Now, that's kind of like a little bit crazy language. So to put it another way, Jesus' relationship with us and his redemption of us can't really be viewed very seriously or robustly, more than just sort of like an instrument, if his human nature isn't one that resembles our current state, which is one that's in need of healing and redemption, right? Christ can't save us, not fully, if he did not enter the condition from what, which we needed saving. Because in essence, what this really makes it sound, it's more like it's Jesus is less God with us and more like God at a safe distance from us. And it kind of like in praxis makes him more divine than human. That's what it feels like, right? That's kind of why we get the whole like, yeah, I know he's 100% of each, but it feels more like it's 90-10, right? So if Jesus' humanity wasn't fully like ours, meaning one that's affected by the fall, we end up losing that sort of bi-directional nature of Christ's mediation. God comes near to us, but we're still, we're still kind of on our own. Like, he drew, Jesus drew near to us, but we can't really draw near to God. I like how one, what one scholar put, uh, says, he says, this, what ends up happening is, is this prompts our preoccupation with our faith, our repentance, our decision. It just kind of puts it, lands it all back on our shoulders, which results in sort of a crushing internalization of sin, guilt, fear, and shame. Thankfully, I think that Jesus' incarnation was much more comprehensive and robust than this. He became human without losing any of his own divinity so that he could get really in there 
and destroys sin from the inside out. By putting on humanity in its total fallen state, he penetrated the darkest depths of our sin and remade it by uniting it to God. So, what does this mean? Because Jesus has taken up our full humanity to God, we aren't separated from God any longer. We're reconciled. We're at one, if you've ever heard the word atonement broken down to be at one that's what's happened here. So just like the tabernacle and the temple, God has now made Jesus the place where man and God can meet. It's not that our humanity has been canceled out and God now sees us as like perfect, ethereal, angelic beings. Like, on the contrary, the incarnation means that Jesus actually validates our humanity. And I don't know about you, but I think that's, like, super beautiful. Like, that the divine plan of reconciliation was not to reject our humanity, but to assume it. Rather than saying, come up to my level, God says, I'm going to come down to yours. Uh, I was trying to think of an example for this, and... Meg can maybe come in and help me out here. But this reminds me of the type of therapy my son received when he was little. My son's on the autism spectrum. And um, one of the most effective therapies for him when he was really little and he wasn't speaking um, was what they call floor time. Meg knows this. Um, But basically the idea is the child sort of leads the therapy, like rather than the therapist. It's very relationship-based. You kind of go in there and you do whatever the kid does. So you get down on their level and you enter their world. So if the kid is like skipping around the room, you skip around the room. If, I don't know, they're putting their shorts on their head, you put a pair of shorts on your head. The point is the therapist enters the world of the child, not the other way around. And one of the strengths of this, um, at least the way I understood it, was that rather than really simply looking at the kid's diagnosis and like what their problems are, you're looking at the child like as a whole person. So you're thinking about the person, not just the issue at hand. So this relates to another common error that we make as modern Christians, where we tend to separate Christ's work on the cross from Christ the person. So we think often about receiving the benefits of the cross, but we're not really interested in receiving Jesus as a person. It ends up a lot being about like what Christ has done, but not Christ himself. It becomes very transactional, you know? That's what it kind of gets reduced to. But when Jesus took on the likeness of sinful flesh, he didn't just become sort of an intermediary, He sort of kind of transfers the benefits of God to us. He became like us, God on our level, so that he could actually be our mediator, assuming what was his to impart, or sorry, assuming what was ours to impart what was his. That was my way of (laughs) illustrating that. So the idea here is that we can now be transformed into the likeness of Jesus because we actively share and we participate in all that belongs to him, his holiness and his obedience. 
I really like the way that these two scholars put it. He said, we need Jesus, the whole of who he is, for us and in us. We need him not only to mediate God to us, but also to mediate us to God. He brings our humanity up to God. He came not only to save us as God, but to save us as human, to save us from our floundering faith, our half-hearted obedience, our reluctant prayer, all those things, sanctifying it all to himself. He offers his Father the holiness and wholeness of his humanity for ours in and as ours. So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ himself, not just his act on the cross, Christ is our salvation. Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, there's that Logos language again, from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ himself, not just the act on the cross, is the redemption. So what does this mean in terms of the incarnation? So this is kind of a bold statement, but nonetheless a true and an orthodox one. But our redemption and the redemption of the world began with the incarnation, not at the cross or the empty tomb. Kind of sounds weird to even hear that, right? I'll say it again. Our redemption and the redemption of the world began with the incarnation. Because if you're like me, you often kind of view the incarnation as kind of like the warm-up act, sort of like the prerequisite to like the big act, Easter, right? Cross, Good Friday, resurrection, all that good stuff. And you're like, sure, like the birth is important, but like only insofar as if there had been no birth, (laughs) there would have been no death and then no resurrection. Like he had to become a man first, right, in order to die, just kind of like the sequence of events. But... We could not be reconciled to God if Jesus did not take up humanity in addition to his divinity. If the word had not become flesh, there would be no reconciliation. And he didn't stoop to humanity and suffer all the effects of the fall, pain, temptation, weakness, tempted in all the ways the scripture tells us. He didn't do that just to become, just to be a moral example to us, although it certainly works that way. He, he was an example. But really, in taking on that humanity and suffering all those things, he actually began to renew and sanctify humanity itself. So early church father Irenaeus, he put it this way. He said, here's how it kind of worked. God created man in his image. We are all the imago dei. But we messed that up right quick, right? We, we messed it up really quick with sin. And we defaced the image of God, as it were. But with the incarnation, Jesus is actually restoring that image. We're we're familiar with that idea of of Jesus taking our place on the cross, that sort of vicariousness, um, you know, that Jesus' work on the cross was vicarious. You know, I feel like there's a lot of worship songs um, that cover this idea. Um, And that is true. But that vicarious work actually began with the incarnation. Uh, Oliver Crisp, scholar who talks a lot about incarnation, he says this, now we see that God the Son also acts on our behalf in the very act of taking upon himself human flesh. His work does not come in two parts, 
becoming human and living a perfect life and then dying on our behalf. No, his work is one whole. He acts on our behalf and in our stead from the incarnation onwards in his birth, life, death, and resurrection. All right, I know this is like a lot. (laughs) This is very heady stuff. So I want to wrap up, but I want to end our time together by looking at some other implications of the incarnation. So we talked about how our redemption begins at incarnation, but it's more than that. So one thing we like to emphasize here at Missio is that the gospel isn't just good news for individuals, like on a personal level. It is 100% that, and thanks be to God that it is. But the scope of the gospel is far bigger than that. And I think that the modern evangelical church has lost, lost, sadly lost its vision um, of that scope. And we've kind of all, like, we've reduced it to these sort of individual salvation plans. When really the plan all along has been the renewal of all things. So the theological term for this idea is called deep incarnation. It sounds like spooky, but yeah, it's, it's a real term, deep incarnation. And the idea is that basically the Christ event, it goes deeper than the salvation of humanity, but it extends to all creation. So one, this is how one scholar puts it. While God is uniquely incarnate in Jesus, that incarnation extends into the depths of the created world in such a way All living things are touched by divine grace and are caught up together in movement toward union with God. Now, if that seems a little woo-woo to you, just remember what Paul says in Romans 8. I don't know if you remember this, but he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So I feel like, I couldn't help it, I always try to like go at least a sermon or two without doing a Narnia reference, but I couldn't help it here. I feel like that's what C.S. Lewis was getting at um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you are familiar with that story. Um, if you remember in the setting for Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in Narnia, it's always winter, never Christmas. Remember this? And it's under the power and spell of the White Witch. So there's a part about halfway through the book where the power of the White Witch begins to fade um, and the long winter starts to thaw a bit and they start to notice that it's like, ooh, there starts to be streams and I'm hearing birds like Twitter and I'm seeing some flowers bloom and some things turning green. And even though Aslan hadn't been sacrificed yet, that comes later in the book, just his coming into Narnia begins to affect change. I don't know if that's what C.S. Lewis meant by like if he was doing a deliberate allusion to the incarnation there, but it, it works. Um, but yeah, it's this idea of like even nature itself is waking up to this idea. It's moving in this direction. So again, to quote Father Rollheiser, who I really love, the earth is as mortal as we are, right? We know this. Sun's dying. So 
If it's to have a future, it needs to be saved by something or someone from outside itself. That something and someone are revealed in the mystery of the incarnation, within which God takes on physical flesh in Christ in order to save the world. And what he came to save was not just us, the people living on this earth, but rather the world, the planet itself, and everything on it. So, if this is all true, my friends, and I have not misguided you for this past hour, and the following things I said were true, that our redemption began with the word becoming flesh, all so that God could draw it into deeper communion with us, that the humanity that Jesus took on was just like our own, not human nature apart from or before the fall, but one that resembles our actual post-fall humanity that's in need of healing and saving and redeeming. If it's true that with the incarnation, that now means that we can't separate Christ's work from his person, but that by receiving the actual person of Jesus, we actively share and participate in his holiness, in his righteousness. If it's true that deep incarnation means that God's plan is not to save just us humans, but the whole of the cosmos, if all of that is true, then what do we know about what God cares about? We know that God cares deeply about the ordinary, the physical, the material. He cares about our bodies, the ground we walk on, the heavens, my little corgi puppy that I just got a couple months ago. He loves it all. And in Jesus, he joined the physical with divine. So to go back to that original quote that I read at the beginning, the incarnation enables us to burrow deep into the heart of planet Earth and find it shimmering with divinity. So now, as they say, it's ridiculously, scandalously easy to see God in the ordinary. And ironically, Christians have somehow been mischaracterized by us and outsiders alike the word anti-body, we're like anti-sensual, we're anti-physical. And I don't know, you know, that was our own doing, like I said. But if anything, the incarnation teaches us that we, followers of the word made flesh, we should be its biggest defenders. The physical should really matter to us. And so, as my final charge to you, don't miss seeing the divine and the ordinary because we think we can only find God in the extraordinary. Don't dismiss Advent or Christmas as sort of a magical escape from the pain and the boredom of life, but rather as like a revel, a reveling in the mess of the ordinary. Because our God is incarnational, as Rollheiser says, we don't need miraculous visions of God. Because our God is incarnational, a sunset will do. We don't need to touch the wounds of Jesus, of Christ's body. We can look in the eyes of the people around us who are grieving. Luckily, this is how we were wired as humans. So our finitude, our limitedness, sort of demands particularity, right? So... Uh, 
don't know if you're familiar with the book Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, but she kind of talks about this idea in that book that, you know, the only way they're able to have like a fondness for like people in general, for humanity in general, is because we love the people that we can name and that we know intimately. We can say that we love something as kind of vast as a city or a state because when we say that, we're talking about like our favorite coffee shop in that, in that city or like a stream that we grew up uh, playing in. And the incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate example of this. So the one who, like we read in Colossians 1, in all things, he holds them all together. The all in all, he became a singular baby in a tangible body in a particular place and time. 